Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to this, the 500th episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're going to look at something a little different because it's our 500th episode, sort of. Happy birthday to us. Yes. (laughs) I I was just trying to work that out and it's like, this is not really the 500th episode. I mean, it is because it's number 500, but... There was that episode we accidentally missed. I think I, I, I jumped a number in somewhere in the 110s, 120s or something. And we I should just, go back went, and fill it in. <laughs> and uh, and then there's like the sidecar episodes and, and then there's, so it's like, but this is 500. This is the yeah, official it's 500 the dating. It is. It is. It's Fusion Patrol podcast numbering dating. Uh, so we're, yeah. We're good, but we're going to be looking at the, the um, I'm going to go there, classic 1956 uh, motion picture, Forbidden Planet. Uh, and we'll talk more about that after this uh, not-so-brief synopsis. In the 22nd century, the United Planets cruiser C-57D, under the command of J.J. Adams, comes out of hyperspace near the star Altair after one year in flight. They are checking on the planet Altair 4 and the scientific colony ship Bellerophon, which traveled to Altair 4 20 years earlier. Their arrival is greeted coldly by Professor Morbius, one of the Bellerophon crew. He warns them of danger, but when they persist, he invites them to lunch. He reveals that he is the sole survivor of the Bellerophon. The others either died when some mysterious planetary force ripped them apart, when their spaceship vaporized when they attempted to leave, or, in the case of his wife, died of natural causes. Morbius claims to be immune, but he warns that it will come back for them if they stay. They are interrupted by Morbius's little white lie. While he is the only survivor of the crew, he's not alone on the planet. He has a beautiful teenage daughter, Altaria, also known as Alta, who was born on the planet. She's never seen young men before, and she likes what she sees. The men of the C-57D like what they see, too. They are 18 hyper-competitive, 24-year-old, perfect physical specimens of manhood, and they've been cooped up on a spaceship for a year. Morbius also has an amazing robot, Robbie, which he built as a hyper-capable servant. Only the ship's cook seems hard up enough to take a shine to Robbie. In light of the news about the Bellerophon, Adams needs to contact Earth. That will require setting up communications equipment and partially dismantling the ship. Gonna be on the planet for a few days, at least. Executive Officer Lieutenant Jerry Farman sees this as an opportunity to teach Alta all about the important physical benefits of hugging and kissing. 
Adams breaks this up and is furious with Alta for dressing so provocatively and being a willing participant or, or being unwittingly taken advantage of. They fight over this and Alta is just all hot and bothered and doesn't understand why. That night, something invisible enters the ship and sabotages some of the equipment. The next day, Adams returns to the Morbius residence to ask questions. Alta is there, and she and Adams begin to realize that they've fallen madly in lust. It, it, it must be lust, right, since they've only actually no been in each other's presence for about an hour. They thought Morbius was in his study, but he wasn't. When Morbius emerges from a secret passage, he catches Adams and Doc snooping through his papers. He takes them on a tour. Beneath them is a 20-square-mile underground city left behind 200,000 years ago. This was the planet of the Krell, a civilization advanced a million years beyond mankind. Overnight, their civilization died. Their cities crumbled to dust. All that remains is the underground machine, quietly working at its unknown purpose and maintaining its and repairing itself for over 200,000 years. Morbius has spent his life on Altair IV, studying what he can of the Krell. All he really knows is that the Krell were working on the ultimate advancement of their civilization, complete mastery of creation without instrumentation. He has been able to get as far as he has because, while experimenting with one of the Krell machines, his brain capacity was permanently expanded. Adams argues that this discovery must be reported back to the United Planets. Morbius doesn't want that. He doesn't believe mankind can deal with the technology, and he wants to oversee it himself. Back at the ship, the crew have erected a force barrier around the ship. Despite that, an invisible creature gets through the barrier, past the guards, and kills Quinn, the communications officer. Adams and Doc were with Morbius and Alta, and the cook was getting drunk with Robbie when Quinn was killed. So they all have an alibi. The next night, the ship has the big gun set up but something approaches. Their weapons slow it down a bit, but are effectively worthless against the invisible creature. It begins killing the crew, including Lieutenant Farman, and then, suddenly, it disappears. Back at the residence, Morbius awakes from a fitful sleep at his desk. Alta is screaming, having experienced a dream that seems to reflect the events at the ship. Adams decides to evacuate the planet and heads to collect Alta and Morbius, even if it is against his will. He and Doc also want to get a crack at that Krell brain enhancement machine. While Adams tries to convince Alta to leave, Doc sneaks off and has a go at the machine. It kills him, but not before expanding his brain and giving him clarity of what happened to the Krell. The Krell machine translates pure thought into anything, anywhere. The machine works, but what the Krell didn't realize is that they still had a primitive id in their subconscious. The subconscious monsters wiped out their entire race overnight. Morbius didn't understand that, nor did he realize that while his brain isn't strong enough to use the machine directly, his subconscious is strong enough to manifest the monster. He is the unwitting murderer of the crew of the Bellerophon and the C-57D. Confronted with the accusation by Adams and the fact that Alta has decided to leave with him, the monster is coming to kill them both. Realizing the truth of the situation, Morbius throws himself between the monster and Alta and is killed, ending the monster too. As his last act, he instructs Adams to put the Krell machine and the planet itself on self-destruct. 24 hours later and 100 million miles away, Adams, Alta, Robbie, and the remaining crew watch from the C-57D as the planet explodes, 
like a supernova. So, uh, Forbidden Planet, Forbidden Planet. You've never seen this film before, right? I've never seen it. And I have only seen this film probably 40 years ago. So, um, I was, I remembered bits of it, but, uh, but I did not, I did not remember it as, as I should have remembered it. Right. I, 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 well, we can get to that. But anyway, so what did you think of this film? I, I found it very interesting. I mean, obviously, as you say, it is seen as a classic and, so it's influential and you can see its influences in ooh, all sorts of ways because, uh-huh. you know, nothing, a lot of things in this, you think, I, I, I can't think of anything, you know, this is 1956, I can't think of anything going that far back that was doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. This um, is a very, you see this film, bits of this all over the place it, after this. It, it is. And that's what I feel bad about not remembering. I think when I watched this, it was just like, oh, yeah, it's more of what I'm already steeped in. Yes. You know, well, and yes, not seeing because, it as, as the groundbreaking that it was. And looking looking back on it, um, you, you look at it through the various lenses of those pieces of culture that it has heavily influenced, which we're all very familiar with. I mean, to the uh, very opening shots, you look at it and you think, God, they're all standing around like... It's the the bridge of the Enterprise. It's basically what mm-hmm. Star Trek would be like if the entire crew had been white and male <laughs> and in grey uniforms. Yes. <laughs> I have a note about that, about this crew. But yes, yes, it, it, it does. It feels very, I mean, the United Planets instead of the United Federation of Planets. I mean, it, it feels like a lot of that was just pulled right from this film. This is this is the you know the future the crew mankind Earth has moved on we've got a you know we've got colonies we've got this military space force and it's it's not clear that they're a military in terms of being an army or an air force right that we're not sure what it is that they do in this Star Trek it's a little more explicit that they're sort of uh, explorers researchers and also defense of the federation but in this it's you know they're they're checking up on some colonists okay i mean that's uh, yeah no it it, it that's definitely a military there's a military mm. there's a military structure to everything you know yes the the commander give gives the orders and is in absolute control when he says dismiss you know that that's what goes and if he if he uh, decides that your behavior has been out of order, well then you take the punishment that you're given. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely, absolutely, and I and I think that there's not an unreasonable uh, conclusion or extrapolation that it is well-funded entities like militaries that can achieve some of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it certainly is a 1950s attitude. Uh, before the military was, you know, vilified uh, after the Vietnam War, so yeah, it, it, it's it, it is um, it's heavily influential film. It, it just and uh, the music that's the first electronic film score. It's it's I did to do 
two things really stood out about this film to me on watching it. Um, and I, I guess I didn't necessarily feel that involved or gripped by the story itself, but I was still, I was still watching it and impressed by, yes, the music, because it is, it is extraordinary. And even now, I think it's quite a remarkable and remarkable score in its own right because of its distinctiveness, but also because of the way that it actually does work as a piece of music. And also the FX, the sound effects. You, you can't yes. draw a line yes. between the ship landing and the monster walking to them, towards them, and the music itself. Absolutely. It, it's, all, it's all tightly intertwined. And, and, and Louis and Bebe Baron... I don't know if that's supposed to be pronounced with an outrageous French accent, but uh, are, you know, some of the groundbreaking pioneers of this field. Uh, I think we have to be careful to say that they're the absolute pioneers of it because that's not quite right. But, you know, they have they have those weird things ticked up in their Wikipedia entry, like the first electronic music recorded to magnetic tape. The first electronic film score; those are theirs. They're not the first "quote unquote" electronic music, and this is basically mm. done with ring modulators. So this is, you know, the Dalek voices. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. Done um, a as a team. I understand that the two of them, uh, Louis Louis, uh, is um, the technical guy. He he did this work based on equations published by MIT wow. that got him into the got him into the electronic music and and bebe bebe bb it's not bb it must be bebe uh was the composer so she she used what he could do and the two of them facilitated the music as a team because and, it because uh, it is it when you talk about dalek sound effects you know the the what you what you can create with the ring modulator and and indeed the fact that you say there is this kind of in indefinable um interconnectedness between the sound effects themselves and the the noises of, <laughs> it yeah, is, yeah the foley I, yeah. I say that i say that because it is you know particularly in 1956 what this must have sounded like to people who had not heard instrumentation of this sort it, it's right it is music, though. I mean, the the, comp the composition is is very effective. Mm -hmm. it, it, it is. It, it's... it builds tension. It builds drama. You know, it's. And gosh, haven't you haven't you heard those refrain? Not those refrains. That's not the right word. But I mean, we absolutely are familiar with that in other places. Look at the soundtrack of the Daleks. Hmm. Tristram Carey's work. Yes, yeah. Very, very, you know, similar. Not not copying it, but it's got that, it has that, that feel. Audiences had never, because this is the first electronic score, um, audiences had never heard anything like it in a movie. They, apparently, the test audiences cheered when the spacecraft landed. Wow. In this, because of the weird noises and the, and the totally, you know, this is nothing like spaceships and rockets that people were looking at in films in the 50s right all of them look like v2 rockets going up into yeah. space and this is this is completely different and 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 then that 
with the exception, you know, the exception of some flying saucer craze stuff. But, you know, they, they had, uh, that ship has been reused over and over again. It's appeared in the Twilight Zone. It appeared in, in many other shows, that actual, that prop ship. Um, it, it, it in itself is, is highly influential. So it's, it's just, yeah. Anyway, I, I diverged from the music, but anyway, yeah, they're, they're, you know, it just is, is a, a milestone. And I, I totally missed that as a kid. I'm watching that and, you know, I, who knows how many shows I've seen with electronic scores and who many, who knows how many shows I've seen with this kind of structure or, and, and did it even wash over my mind the, kind of the depth of the the moral implications of what's happening here on this planet i don't know i don't remember because i just don't remember enough about it the the other thing that that um ha- does hang together incredibly well and complements the music i think and is again impressive from the point of view of in a slightly detached way watching watching this film and admiring this film is the the way in which the special effects which are really, really effective, are combined with each other and, w- and with the kind of map paintings and the, the, the set design and so forth. It, it feels like not only has some money been spent on this, but it's been spent in a very effective way. You know, what, what, you, what you are seeing, what, what it's been spent on is what you are seeing right there on the screen um, for example, in the way that the id monster breaks through or is trying to break through the electronic barrier there and the way the way in which all of that is animated, you see exactly the right amount. You know, we've talked before about how when when you when you show a monster, you you risk your special effects really spoiling the illusion mm-hmm. and so you need to be you need to be showing less rather than more what they do here is they show the the, uh, the monster is invisible for most of the film which is always a very clever way of avoiding that but at some point it does start to feel like you need to actually have an idea of what it is they're facing and a and a and a more substantial idea than a blaster cast of its big toe and mm-hmm. so showing the the effect of those uh, electric i don't know what you call them but you know the yeah the, 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 the sparks the arcs the yeah. whatever it is um running around the outline of uh, and, and animating this monster was absolutely true i mean it's by no means the 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 only impressive special effect on this film i mean right from the seeing the the uh, cart gliding through the dust on the planet and as you say, the landing of the, of the saucer, but but I think that in particular stood out to me as a as a remarkable, or or, or where you know the molten doorway where the where the monster is breaking through the molten doorway, I mm-hmm. thought that was fabulously done. Uh, you know, you said something earlier, and I and I want to I want to echo it because I, it kind of fits the theme of my of my notes, and that is kind of from the plot of this the story of this it's kind of eh. <laughs> it's, it's but but it is such a fabulous piece of work world building that yes. that it is fascinating just you could i think i could spend two hours just kind of wandering around this world on film and 
and enjoy it because it is so well well thought. I mean, here's another one that that just blows me away: how good it is. Yes, the outline of the monster is fantastic. I think that's probably what the Walt Disney animator got got credit for uh, in the opening credits. But like, uh, ignoring the plausibility of this, when Morbius <laughs> says there is no physical depiction of what the Krell looked like, but perhaps you can draw your conclusion from the the typical shape of their door. Th- this is this has been a bugboo of mine, and I'm sure we've mentioned it on this podcast many times. It's been a bugboo of mine that. Doors are functional. And so whenever you go to some stupid space station where the doors are round or they're, or they're square, they have hexagonal edges to them, you think, this is just stupid design. This is just a designer going, I, you know, I don't want my door to look normal, so I'm going to make it look dumb, is what it looks. Here, not only does it work, but it, it Fills your imagination when he mentions that line. It's like, think yeah. about it. Here's what their doors look like. What do they look like? I mean, we know a door doesn't look like a human-shaped cutout. So <laughs> a door does not look like us, but at the same time, it does sort of reflect our general body pattern. So what Yeah. What and must t- they t- look like? Yeah. It t- tells you kind of with bipeds, we're less than eight foot, more than three foot, you know, all that. Yeah. And, and and taller than we are wider and yeah, yeah it, it is it is it, it's fascinating and there's a piece they don't even bring to your attention the benches in the uh in the lab are weird looking they're like a single bench with two backs mm-hmm. they're low and they're kind of they're kind of uh well i mean they kind of look like a park bench if a park bench had two chair backs on it instead of a bench back and, and like, well, is that an anatomical concession to the shape of the creature? Huh. I don't know. <laughs> I, know I need to take a closer look at that. Because obviously there's the fact that he mentions that the the headset is not designed for human cranium. Right. On and that same set, yeah, there's a, or that same console, there's a, there's a chair. You get a good look at it when they first go into the lab and over there on the left. And it's just like, that is... A weird looking bench. Why is that a weird looking bench? And yeah, the the head thing, the the mention that Morbius says about like it was working this, I, I wish I had multiple arms, and suddenly you're now picturing the Krell as these sort of wide, short, squat, multi armed <laughs> uh creatures. And yeah. and yet we never never get to, I, I it it's brilliant. The and, and the creature itself What's that supposed to look like? I mean, that's that we, you know, at the end of this film, we learn that that's not, that's not a Krell thing. That's a Morbius thing. Yeah. Is that Morbius putting his thought of what a Krell might look like in projection, or is that, or 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 is that something that the machine has manifested based on its, you know, this planet? These are what things on this planet look like. He wants a monster. Here's a monster. Because it is kind of, I mean, it's much bigger than those doors, but it is kind of, you know, wider and than tall. You know, it's more of a triangular shape than than we are. I, I it's just wow. I just I like. I, I thought I thought it stuff. was I thought it was completely fantastical in the sense that it didn't necessarily have any grounding in either Altair or the Krell. It was just something from the depths of Morbius's psyche 
because you, could, the, you know the plaster cast of the foot they say this is this is this is completely impractical and nothing would ever evolve like this yeah 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 no i i i, I get that it's not supposed to represent a thing and it is it is a manifestation of the mind it's just you could kind of picture that if if morbius has spent 20 years looking at all this stuff he's bound to have an idea in his head what he might think a krell looks like and mm-hmm. i could sort of remember he did say that he thought it was some sort of planetary force so he is equating this monster with something the planet spit forth so i could i could totally see that being you know like a man a blind man describing an elephant <laughs> and then if he yeah. could manifest it that's what it would look like uh, it, it it just yeah it, it it i love it i love the whole I love the whole thing. And and another thing I love about this film, absolutely love about this film. One of my, my favorite ideas in science fiction is space archaeology. Human, human archaeology. I don't, I don't care about (laughs) paleontology. Yeah. But I, I've never been bothered by archaeology, but, but the first time the concept of you go to a planet and instead of meeting aliens, you find their ruins. Yeah. And and draw from that, just I, I don't know it. The idea itself just absolutely entrances me, and so I I I am extremely mad at the end of this film that it is destroyed. <laughs> you know that is that is that is just Fantasy. like somebody. Yeah, it's like somebody blowing up some some ancient relic. I I don't care for archaeology. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't dislike it. You know when people destroy ancient relics that irritates the heck out of me but at the same time i i never had any desire to do archaeology but you know i'm not i'm not indiana jones and never and never wanted to be but it uh yeah i i i was angry i was angry at that at the end and i think it's it was done correctly morbius's arrogance is still no mankind can't have this and and now we can see with good reason but you know, would Adams have agreed? I don't think so. He doesn't tell Adams what he's done until after he's done it. No. <laughs> so, and, and by the way, you just threw the self-destruct switch. Ha <laughs> ha! Get out. I, I really like the setup of this film. The plot is just, you know, if you took out the, the, the horrifically uh, sexist uh, 1950s plot line and left it with just the monster stalking the ship it would it would be you know that's still not much of a plot but but that's but maybe very i mean but very much on par with a lot of films of that era where you land somewhere and each night something comes back and kills you until you finally destroy it and and it's elevated by the fact that it is it is really man versus man here not man versus monster and we don't realize it but yeah it, it, i think still... there's, i think there's plenty in the in the core plot itself i and and some of the some of the the dialogue I thought was excellent. So I guess the thing that made made it less engaging was the characters, probably. <laughs> um, yeah. And the the fact that I found it I mean, for a start, I found it very difficult to tell any of the crew members apart. <laughs> they all they all, <laughs> all, to, all those white men look alike, yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. So, um, and um, I can't. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't even tell Commander Drebin from all the rest of them for 
ages and ages. And then I, then when I figured out, I, I said to myself, surely that can't be Leslie Nielsen. Mm-hmm. And I obviously replied to myself, it is Leslie Nielsen and, and don't, don't call Shirley. him Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, that Leslie Nielsen was a straight, straight actor uh, prior to Airplane. But, but not just that. Leading man contracts. Yeah. Straight, square-jawed, utterly anonymous actor mm-hmm. in amongst all of these kind of square-jawed... You know, you could tell Cookie was Cookie because he was wearing an apron. The rest of them, they all had their <laughs> hair slicked back in the same way. Right, you know, but now, now wait a minute. I, I, maybe this is the difference between an American and, the, and, and, and a, a Brit, but um, all of those actors are pretty well-known. Leslie Nielsen... Uh, Warren Stevens' Doc is a guy that's just turned up everywhere in television. Uh, so, I mean, instantly recognizable to me. Um, uh, uh, Jack Kelly, uh, who is Farman, is probably the most unrecognizable of the bunch to me, but he's also been all over the place, was a star of, of uh, Maverick at one point, along with James Garner and Roger Moore. Uh, he, uh Quinn is Oscar Goldman from the Six Million Dollar Man. Um, okay, okay. I, you know, so I, if, I, if, I, I, for me, they were like, oh, I know that guy, and I know that guy. I knew I, even Cookie is is reasonably famous. He was co-star in Police Woman for for ages. I mean, it's just I knew them. So, if you set if you if you set if you set aside their their physical characteristics and the fact that their uniform doesn't exactly help with this, it's not just it's not just the apron that sets Cookie apart. Cookie. Cookie is a is a is a caricature, you know the the comedy of, relief, yeah, yeah. Um, at least that gives you something to hang on him, in the sense of who the hell is he? So, tell me what any characteristic of any of the other characters is. Um, well, Farman obviously is an exploitive bastard. Um, Doc Making is him an interesting. From the others from <clears throat> well, <laughs> I. I Yes, I, I, yeah, no, I get your point. I get your point. Um, they're very generic, they're definitely, I guess. They're very generic. Yes. All right. I'll go along with that. And I am disappointed in that. So, for example, Doc is a fascinating character in a way. He does things in this story that give him a little bit more character than the others. And yet at the same time, it's weird. I mean, starting with his practically his first line, the Lord sure does make some beautiful planets. Um, he, he's the guy that's standing there going, you know, boy, I could you could really get used to these skies. And and, you know, he is he's clearly got the wonder uh, about this. And at the same time, he's attributing it to God, which is ridiculous in this case. But um, that's 16.73 light years from Earth. Huh. Um and he also does things that are never explained in this film. So, for example, when Morbius is explaining to Adams about the machine that has the sum total of Krell knowledge on it, which I find it hard to believe it doesn't have medical and anatomical diagrams in it, but uh, it's the sum total of Krell knowledge. Okay, they just, they just left medicine out. Um, when he's talking about that, Adams is suddenly is like, well, this is just, uh, uh, and Doc just basically says, oh, what is this over here, Morbius? Uh, show me this machine. And it's like, why did he derail the captain on that thought, or the commander mm. on that thought? Yes, I've um, that. And, it, and he's incredibly quick on the uptake 
when the captain comes back, well, there's been a complication or, you know, there's been a new development. Oh, the complicates thing. You know, he he's watching the crew and he absolutely sees what they're doing. And you can tell he knows exactly what's going on. And yet he's almost watching it like this weird, dispassionate observer. And, and you I, want to know what I, makes him tick. You, yes, I do. Him? What, what is what is going on? And, and, and in fact, that is not helped by the fact that his line is, well, we've been in space for a year and what I'm seeing is heaven right now. And you're like, wow, that one is hmm. seems out of character for that character, it, for for all the rest of the, the rest except, of the stuff except, that he does. Ex- except that there is a there is a there is a sense that they're all like that. Yes. And and to, to some degree, it is it's normalized and accepted in a way that makes it quite i mean particularly that line that's probably the worst line in it yeah it, it's it there there is that problematic elephant in the room this is just so embedded in the sexism of that era and it, it's it's and morbius doesn't react to it and that you know again it's like i mean Al, yes Alta doesn't hear it or wouldn't necessarily understand it but morbius doesn't you're right he doesn't and and later when alta comes in and she's railing to Morbius about how much she hates Adams and how much she can't stand it. And she's re- reciting to him verbatim what he said. Then I'll put guards on the guards and you can't dress this way. And and anybody, even hearing that secondhand, would know exactly what Adams is talking about. He he's Adams is, in his own twisted way, trying to protect Alta from the other 17 guys in the crew. Because they're going to exploit her because she's the only attractive girl on this entire planet that they've seen in goes. a year. Yeah. And a girl. And that too. And Morbius is listening to that with this weird smile on his face that I cannot figure out. Is he is he smiling because she's mad at Adams and she, and he's worried that she's going to fall in love and leave him? Or is he smiling because... He knows what Adams is talking about, and Alta doesn't. And I can't, I can't figure it out at all. I can't read it at all in that because I, I can't put myself in the mindset of being anything but disgusted by the whole behavior <laughs> of everybody on the ship. I wonder if if um, if that's supposed to be a recognition of on Morbius's part that he's seeing signs of Adams actually caring about. Alter, it's yeah. There's that too. He, he's he, yeah. It's 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 Prospero's matchmaking with Miranda and um, Ferdinand. And I, I, and I believe you've hit your Shakespeare. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think that there is there is because because that's partly where you get a little bit more character when you get to, when you get to Morbius and Alter and you and you. It is the Prospero and Miranda relationship out of out of the Tempest, in the sense that they have been there for twelve years, which does suggest some deliberate allusion to the Tempest, I think. And they've oh. been shipwrecked, and y- yes, and there is an innocence to Miranda about uh, to Alter. So you so you've got all of that. I don't know how far the the, the parallel stretches. To be honest, I, mean, right. I was kind of trying to work out if, in some twisted way, the Id monster could be Caliban because it isn't quite 
fit and I'm buggered if I'm going to see Ariel in Robbie the Robot. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I, uh, and I will tell to to listeners as uh, that I did sort of prime Simon on this, and I said that one of the things about Forbidden Planet is that it is sometimes referred to as a retelling of a Shakespeare play, and it, it's a play I have never seen or read, so I am not qualified to say that but i knew he would be and i didn't tell him what play it was to see if he'd spot it and you did so <laughs> so at least it was it was it was enough that you at least primed knowing that there might be a shakespeare parallel you did catch it um yes yes and yeah what what yes once you once you once you get into to meeting morbius and his daughter um particularly particularly when ulster uh, turns up then you see the parallels with those characters and the fact that Morbius has this kind of... It is essentially that he has learned sorcery. I mean, the whole expanding mm-hmm. his brain and everything. It's, there's, it, it's getting to the point of being beyond science. The, the, the id monster stuff mm-hmm. takes you into the realms of psychobabble, I think. But the, 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 the parallels there, I think, add to the story because you do get a bit more from the characters then and i and i wonder if that does i wonder if it does inform the way that i then see some of those scenes like the one you were alluding to where the two of them are are, are discussing adams and and i i can maybe see something in morbius's reaction to that that makes more sense because of it mhm okay that that's uh, um interesting it might and without that frame of reference i i'm just looking at that scene clueless <laughs> like i don't i don't get that i don't i but you know are we supposed to be able to get are we supposed to be able to understand morbius he is uh, a human being who has been changed by this machine and we don't know what else has changed about this man um he has a a strong anti well, he has a strong, arrogant intellectualism position. You can see that. Um, at the same time, this film kind of has an anti-intellectual bent to it because yeah. you're supposed to see his, well, I'm so much smarter than you, as a bad thing. And yet, <laughs> this is you know, the meat of what's fascinating about the monster here is that Morbius both is and is not the villain. He, he's not... Yes. He's not going out and killing these people. He doesn't even... I think he doesn't even really know that he's going out and killing these people. And, and you know, it's true. We all we all harbor these things that we would never act upon or, or maybe even realize. But, you know, if, if a Krell machine existed on this planet, we would be dead overnight, too as a species. Oh yes, absolutely. You know, we we would be gone. I mean, I I can say, you know, if if I got exposed to one, there would be no Republicans left. And that's a lot of people, right? They'd be gone. And and that's just cuz of the way I feel right now about what's going on in American politics. But I, I would never ever ever act on something like that. But if I was asleep and a machine picked up my disgust and hatred, it sure would be a problem. And by that same 
token if somebody else on the opposite end got it i'd be gone too so yeah no the whole race would be gone in no time and, we, we and, would be blah. and that that's that's a decision in in the way in which they conclude the story with with essentially um Morbius, Morbius having to having to pay the price for having discovered having used having i mean it's not even well obviously i mean he he killed the crew of the bellerophon even though he didn't realize it um so there there is already a tragedy there but i mean the the point is the tempest the tempest's a comedy it doesn't end the way forbidden planet ends oh. that <laughs> that that's their decision to say you know morbius can't be redeemed mm-hmm. uh, and neither can the krell technology you know so because yeah. they have to destroy it and i i think that there's a it's so weird that you would take a show that is about the advancements that man has made the hyperspace the spacecrafts the the, the united planets and exploring new worlds all of that is all of that is mankind building up his knowledge and his technology mm. and his and his expanding and yet go too far play god literally and that's too much you got to die it's it's somewhere on the frankenstein scale again but there and is i don't know where you draw of, the line you you when you get into that when you get into the situation morbius was in where he's discovered something the kind of knowledge that that would be that would that could completely change the future of his race mm. and he thinks it might it might destroy them to have have even though he doesn't know everything's going he might destroy them to have it at the same time he can see that it could massively deprive them you know the 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 where the future of mankind with some of the technology that has there some of the advances you know he could be depriving uh the the the, the i was going to say the world but obviously we're beyond the world yeah the, the, the whole race of all sorts of opportunities, all sorts of lives that would not be able to be lived because he hasn't provided or he hasn't passed on what, yeah. he, what he has discovered. So he is sitting there going, I will decide what I pass on and what I don't, which, you know, is absolutely the most playing God of playing God that you could be playing God. But the reality is, if he destroyed everything, he'd be playing God. And if he just handed everything over to commander drebin he would also be playing god because the decision has to be made and he he is that he's the one in that position so yeah it's, it, it's, it's it, unenviable i think another thing again falling in that bit less is more kind of thing in this film alta never explains to farman what she's been told about earth but i think we draw a pretty good conclusion that it's a very cynical view Morbius has painted a very cynical picture for her that that does not make her want to go see other people. And yes. so, again, Morbius's arrogance there, he's looking down on all of us for all our foibles. He's holding back the technology because he doesn't think mankind can handle it. And all the while, utterly oblivious to the fact that he also is one of us and cannot handle either that it's a 
I, I don't want to say it's a good message, but you know, it is a it is a lot deeper than ninety nine percent of the science fiction films of the nineteen fifties. Right there, <laughs> if if I would you know be so bold as to put a number on it, I mean that is that is what makes this actually something worthy of analyzing. In, but there's some this. this there is something else that's going on there, I think. Um, which is connected with all of the sexism and connected with uh, Alta and her character and her whole why should people want to kiss each other, which is the notion of essentially she's living in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. And Morbius, if we're talking about playing God, Morbius is withholding from her the knowledge of good and evil. True. And True. That's kind of why I I think we get the whole you can't run around like that in front of men thing because they are amongst the fallen and the, the depraved and she is an innocent and she doesn't have the knowledge that they have. I'm not I'm I'm, I'm absolutely not trying to excuse any of this. Um, but what I would point to is the fact that we have this unexplained, um, you know, Alter's friends. You've got a tiger. Oh, good. Okay, good. I was going there. <laughs> and the tiger is calmed by her. And Morbius explicitly makes mention of the fact that it is behaving that way when it is in her presence. And otherwise, it is a normal savage tiger. And then uh -huh. you have this moment of discovery it is if you like the fall when she starts responding to commander adams in that embrace the tiger comes along and leaps on her and he vaporizes the tiger it's kind of harsh um and it's another neat special effect but her reaction is very much not um oh my god you've killed my pet cat which i was almost expecting um, especially as she's not been that keen on him up to that point, she she actually does recognise that no, he, she her life was in danger. She was going to be savaged uh -huh. by this tiger, who no because her innocence is gone. Yeah, and and I what I have there is it's that next what he was going to kill me. And Adams looks at her and you really don't know, do you? <laughs> it's like. That's his response. You, you really, he's, he's absolutely mind boggled that she can't understand what's going on here. And I'm, and I gotta say, I'm walking away from that going, I'm not 100% sure I know what well, I'm not, trying to say there. Because well, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure what he knows. Is, is, he, yeah. is, he, is, he, is he saying he recognizes that it was her innocence, her lost innocence, that was having this effect on the tiger in the first place? Or is he just too dense? to have understood that it wasn't a coincidence that the tiger never killed her in the past. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I thought, frankly, I thought there was an, uh, you know, the, the tiger was leaping at them, right? You can't say yes. the tiger was leaping at her. It was leaping at them. My thought when the tiger was going, it was that it was trying to protect her, that it was going for Commander Drebin and that yeah, yeah, it was jealousy. Okay. I can see right? that. But, yeah. but you're right. When he kills it, she doesn't she doesn't say, he was going to kill you. 
She says, he was going to kill me. So, yeah, that is a... I had not put that as... I had not... Well, I guess I had put it as innocence. I I assumed that there was something sexual in there. But I... Yeah, which I suppose we can translate to innocence. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, yeah, I... I, um, Because she's still pretty innocent, even afterwards. Um, Yes. Foolishly. So, yeah, it's like... But it is... I guess it is that moment where the path of innocence is is lost although i would argue that that started when she had robbie making a new dress for her um yeah yes but yeah it's like eve realizing she's naked yeah um which you know drebin's the one that told her so he is the one that brought uh darn it i wish you hadn't started that now i'm gonna call him drebin for the rest of the time (laughs) (laughs) he's the one that brought the knowledge but yes that you're naked i mean the the yes Although the fact is that she doesn't understand why why it is a problem, and to be honest, she shouldn't. I mean that her her perspective is not naivety. It's or it should, it's the correct response, whether it comes out of naivety or not. It's the correct response, in the sense of why the hell should she have to dress any way other than the way that she likes because of whatever it is that his mm-hmm. men are thinking about. Right. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's extremely that that is extremely an offensive concept. <laughs> it's like, What's wrong? Oh, with you're going to bring it on. You're going to you're going to bring this on yourself. You're going. Yeah. My men are going to yeah. rape you because you dress like that. I mean, that is. We, you know, and which again, I mean, the, there are, there are a couple of slightly strange things about it. one is one is the fact that okay, so it's 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 um, the twenty second century or twenty third century or wherever the hell we are, and twenty twenty second. We don't appear to have women astronauts yet, and except yeah. Morbius's wife. Uh huh. The colonists. Well, yes. these guys are in the military. It could be that. It could be that difference right there. Okay. So this we're is not this is the old serving. right. They certainly would not have had in in our military in 1956. And I guessing that's probably yeah yeah. Uh, no, I, you know, I, so I can see that. I mean, obviously, it, it requires a certain um, blinkeredness to to view but, that as being something that will not change for a quarter of a millennium but let, let's let's step back to the opening narration of this episode uh or this this movie where the narrator says and uh i should have it here exactly but he actually says that it was in the last decade of the 21st century that men and women set foot on the moon ah okay but is that colonizing i i don't know I mean, it, it sounds like you're saying that it, the first people who got there are men and women. Although it, I think it's it, funny that they picked the first, the last decade of the 21st century. That's like a hundred and hundred and you know fifty or sixty years <laughs> out from when this film was made, um, and they landed on the moon. I think in th- it was 130 years out from when the film was made, and we landed on the moon in 13, 13 years, years after yeah, this film yeah. was. Yeah, so uh, I thought that was hey man, only a factor of ten. But it, I mean that I don't know. That could have been that could have been that could have been women coming to the moon, um, you know, to cook for the men. As as that's true. Whoever except they've got says, cookie. Why don't they have a girl? Whoever it is who says about Robbie being a housewife's dream. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that was Doc, too. Very much in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. It, it, yeah, it wasn't totally clear to me 
that these things totally meshed together. It was, it was perhaps the the I, I had I hadn't necessarily made the distinction about the Bellerophon being being a, a colonist ship and the C five seven D being purely military. I just thought maybe they needed to have some way of Morbius's wife being on Altair and so they had I believe they, had, they, they called they it a, a scientific colony ship. Okay. Okay. So I get, yeah, I guess the rules may be different. But it just seemed to me that if you if you could have had women crewing one of the ship one of the ships, then you might have had women on the other. Now maybe this just happened to be an all male ship, but does that really mean that the men were completely out of control? I mean I am I am seriously worried about the trip home. <laughs> on that ship well yeah because it's at least a year and uh doc's dead so and i don't know if they have any birth control on that ship but we it, yeah. it's yeah or yeah. privacy or yeah anything of that nature i am um, and she and she and she, she says what's what's wrong with my clothes i designed them myself um which, <laughs> i think you picked another one yeah okay which i liked i liked that um Obviously, it was convenient for the filmmakers that she happened to design all her clothes as extremely short mini skirts, uh, which apparently led to the film being banned in Spain until 1967. So less fortunate for the Spanish. Yeah. And actually, yeah. actually, Helen Rose designed them. But in the film, it, within the story, the mm-hmm. the way in which she designed her clothes appears to be <laughs> telling Robbie. Robbie to make them. <laughs> Yeah. Like, yes, I I thought that was a, a huge gaffe in the in the story because you know she goes all that effort say I discerned all these myself and then we see her oh no Robbie I just want it to be and and then sort of and then cover and things and then uh, radiation proof no 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 just I proof okay right, fine I'll rip that up for you <laughs> like, <laughs> and then you know Robbie does a nice job yes yeah no he you know good good on you Robbie he or he- uh, <laughs> Helen Rose they. They yeah they do they do a fine job. I mean I yes and I I like Anne Francis in this and she is you know she yeah I can understand she's about twenty five when she filmed this she is a, she is a little older than I think the the character um, and it's about a year after she was in Bad Day at Black Rock where she inspires one of the it's a, one of my favourite westerns and she inspires one of the best lines in the film where. Um, Robert Ryan says, she must have strained every muscle in her head to get that stupid. <laughs> oh, that is a good one. Uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. Is that a Spencer Tracy film? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's a okay. One, yeah, yeah, yeah. One okay, armed man right. riding into town in, yeah. a, in a sort of Western cum noir. It's uh, well worth it. Yeah, he's in a Jeep, as I recall. So it's not Western as in old there West, is a, right? There is a Jeep in it, but it's... Uh, so it's, it's modern. It's, it's 50s. It's modern. It's contemporary, it, yeah. yeah. I think he arrives yeah. on a train, just like... Um, uh, oh, what's his yeah, name yeah, in mean, High Noon? But, um, yeah. Gary, Mitch, uh, Gary Mitchell. <laughs> Glenn Ford? Uh, no, no. It's get, never mind. Never mind. It'll, Robert Mitchum. No, I don't no, remember. Robert Mitchum. It's, it's Gary Cooper. 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 There we go. Yes. Yeah, so let, let's um, let, let's group Robbie and the cook kind of together here a little bit. But I'll I'll talk a little bit about Drinking Robbie. Buddies. Well, yeah. Now, one of the things that that uh, films of this era, and particularly films a little bit older than this, would be very very guilty of 
is to have Cook be a person of color uh-huh. uh, and the comic relief character. Uh-huh. And also the butler would likely be a person of color. Or in the rare circumstances, they might be the traditional stiff upper lip British butler. But a lot of times they would not be. Um, and they're also usually used for comic relief, which is a, 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 another terrible facet of these old films is that they'll bring these characters in and then they will be comedy stupid, comedy uneducated, comedy whatever it happens to be. Cook fits that role perfectly except that he's a white guy and i just i don't understand is he supposed to be one of those hyper perfect specimens that that adams is talking about or or do they have a different selection criteria for the cook well you know it's like he's kind of he's he's young he's obviously fit he's also a bit of a white boy and has a drink problem Yes, I guess their screening program is without, not perfect. With that one bottle of bourbon? Um, <laughs> what, what, I love the fact that, that Robbie produced whatever it was, 60 gallons, but put it all into the tiny little half-pint glass bottles. What was he going to do with those bottles? What, what would he do with 60 gallons? I mean, was he going to sneak it on the ship? How was he... I don't even... I don't even begin to get that and i am deeply disturbed by his first question of robbie is is it male or female (laughs) it's like (laughs) why do you care (laughs) what what a uh (laughs) it's like the implications there are just uh all wrong they're just all wrong and he's the one that goes off and gets drunk with a robot we don't see what's going on with those two i I don't but i uh, i do I do, I do like, I do like the initial exchange he has, where he he's it's the it's the way he he approaches him. That dialogue is very much along the lines of he he's approaching Robbie as you know a local character, and he's mm-hmm. trying to score some he's yep. trying to score some alcohol off him. That's basically what it is. Only it wouldn't be alcohol. The real stuff. Yeah. <laughs> where you know where where. Where where can a man get a bit of you know round round t- and the next thing he'll be knowing he'll, he'll be asking is you know do you, uh, where where do I where do I find the, the a, a bit of fun you know in this town well the, clearly a pool party because a pool parlor because my my favorite line from Cook is another new planet no beer women or pool parlors nothing to do <laughs> but throw rocks at tin cans and you have to you bring, have to your, bring own your own tin, tin can. can yeah. No, I did say I like the dialogue. Yeah, it is. It is a. It's a a, a great line uh, for the comic relief characters, right? So again, so it, I it it is kind of weird that that they still have those roles in this film that would normally be filled in a racist way. Um, but for the roles, I thought they actually did reasonably reasonably well i mean come on when robbie goes oxygen i rarely use it myself for most rust just like yeah. <laughs> it's like okay we're we're dealing with the next level robot here <laughs> i know or, i know I, I want to hear i want to hear him getting into a contest with siri because i reckon he could throw some next level shade at her oh yeah yeah and of course what is his line about what what kept you i this is another one that cracks me up about uh, movies, the the distortion of reality in movies. If I'm in a room 
and I push a bell to get a servant there. And if the door doesn't open instantly, <laughs> the person's going to go, what took you so long? It's like, well, you know, they actually have to walk. They're probably not waiting outside the door listening. So so she only rings, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds before Robbie comes in after she rings the bell. And it's like, what took you so long? Excuse me, I was giving myself an oil job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which I'm I'm sure that as a kid, when I heard it, I thought that's funny because cars get oil jobs and he's a machine uh, and not as an old man and look at it and go, oil job, oh dear. (laughs) It's like, oh dear. (laughs) That could be something else altogether. (laughs) The, um, the, The robot... Cost one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. That's well over a million today, and it was the most expensive part of the uh, the budget, I believe. It was also the most expensive movie prop ever built to date. Wow! At that point, Um, it was designed by a guy named Robert Kanushta, and he also designed uh, the robot from Lost in Space, which explains why they look. similar in some ways the the robot was obviously so expensive that you will see him pop up all over the place he's been in the twilight zone he's been in lost in space he's been in uh i i can't even name the things he's been in he is he's been in dozens of other shows usually as a walk-in for the advancement of technology even had another film he was starring in in the invisible boy it's uh it's nothing like the robots that were built at the time. And I, I don't mean real robots. I mean movie robots, which kind of mm-hmm. had that tin can look, um, you know, more straight sides because that's what it, it fit a guy in the thing. And it, it I thought it was interesting that they put in... Nowadays, nowadays, if you see a robot in a science fiction show... And they talk about, you know, oh, that could be a terrible weapon. And the person will explain, oh, no, not my robot. They'll always basically go, he's been programmed with Asimov's rules of robot, three laws of robotics. This robot's obviously been programmed with them, but they don't mention them. They don't, they don't call it out by name, which is what they do now. And mm-hmm. I, uh, and I, I went to double check. Asimov's rules are from 42. This is 56. So mm-hmm. obviously it's, it's bound to be, uh, Uh, Let's see. Oh, the other thing I thought was interesting about the robot is that very technically accurate but not at all helpful answer he gives Cookie when he says, what is it? Is there something coming this way? No, sir. Nothing coming this way. (laughs) But he obviously knows that the monster is heading towards the ship because he picks it up and detects it, just like he does later on in the film when it's heading to the house. Yeah. Although when like, when it's head, when it's heading to the house, he says there is. I can't I can't remember yeah. exactly what the line is. He says there there is something coming this way. It's quite near. Or, yes, you know something very like. Again, it may be that I'm trained in the way I expect film and TV robots to behave, but I I would I would anticipate there being some kind of figure attached to. Oh yeah, you, like, you know, even if it's an approximation, fifty one meters. Because uh, because uh, otherwise you're you're relying you know if you're if you're if you're thinking about it from an interface design point of view you need to know that your user has a shared understanding of what quite near means 
and what the parameter because you're you're going to program in the parameters for what that is mm-hmm. you the data that you're going to be interpreting is going to give you an actual distance and you need to express that so it just seemed odd I, I just came back to the idea of Morbius not wanting to give technology to mankind. He did because the robot goes back with him and the robot can yeah. manufacture 60 gallons of alcohol <laughs> overnight and, and star sapphires and diamonds and emeralds and all the food. I mean, that is going to absolutely revolutionize the world. <laughs> like just from that robot, if they take him back and disassemble him and make more or use the technology in him, they're going to uh, uh, make huge advancements. Again, it's that kind of space archaeology thing, although he's not exactly an artificial relic. but it's just something that Morbius knocked up before he got bored and moved on to something else. Yeah, but from the knowledge that he gained from the Krell. So, you know, it is is part of that. uh, Yeah, he's, he's changed. He has changed the world. Whether he likes it or not, he did. Um, oh, another nice touch of things that they don't mention explicitly and yet obviously is in there is the fact that Cookie doesn't get a hangover. And he, he mentions he doesn't get a hangover, but nowhere does anyone trot out the whole, well, obviously he extracted the toxins that cause hangovers in alcohol when he synthesized it. That's the implication of it, but they don't say it. And I, I love a film that throws out stuff like that and doesn't have to beat you over the head with it. You know, with the with with mm-hmm. what you're supposed to conclude out of that. Uh, let's see. Uh, Leslie Nielsen is a Canadian, which explains why he actually calls Farman Lieutenant. Uh, oh yes, at one of point I wouldn't have noticed in... that. What with it being correct, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how anybody can. I don't see how anybody can look at the spelling of Lieutenant and get an F out of that. I just don't see it. Um, but. Uh... <laughs> You you might say the same thing about Loughborough. Well, I probably uh, probably would. <laughs> but anyway, um, he is he legally deaf. Is he? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, since before that. he was doing acting. Yeah, he wore a hearing aid most of his life. Um, they're, they're always quick to point out he was legally deaf. Obviously, he could hear. But, you know, it's like being legally blind. You can see just so badly that you might as well not and so i had never heard that before i was just doing a little look up here because i was kind of curious about you know we all know leslie nielsen from airplane on you know that that's really where he found his groove over the Mm -hmm. years but you know he had a he had a career prior to that playing the square jawed straight laced kind of guy and uh, uh that's one of the reasons they picked him for airplane you know, they picked actors who yes. had a reputation as being Robert Stack and and Peter Graves and all those guys that were so they and and uh, oh gosh, I can't think of his name, Lloyd Bridges, <laughs> the most yeah. famous one of the bunch, Lloyd Bridges. Um, so yeah, that that was a, let's see, Walter Pigeon, um, famous actor of the age, well over a hundred films on his list. I think genre people would know him apart from Forbidden Planet as the most famous science fiction thing is he was Admiral Nelson in the original voyage to the bottom of the sea. Let's see. Got some notes here about the FX and the props. We've already talked about the ship. I loved I, I liked the sets. I mean the fact that they're just yeah. rocks strewn around on the on the ground too. 
you know, just they, they clearly just went out to a gravel pit and grabbed some bigger rocks and chucked them around. It 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 works. It uh, I was, you know, we already talked about the matte paintings. They're nice. I think it 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 did really well that they sat down as part of that world building and they they took a moment to get off the ship and look at it. Go look at that color of that sky or the guys talking about the moons and stuff. It, it's it 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 real. It makes that feel real. Um, it did not make it feel real when they had animals from Earth <laughs> on there. And and the the there are two things about it that bugged me. I mean, he explains it later on, right? Oh, well, they went to Earth and they picked up animals from Earth, and that's why there are animals from Earth here. But what bugs me most about it is that there are A, only animals from Earth, and B, neither Doc nor Farman nor Adams say anything at all about it <laughs> you know there there is there is absolutely no scientific curiosity at all that there's tigers and deer on this planet until much later on when he says they went to earth and brought back specimens and suddenly they're like oh that explains it it's like nah you, you, surely you would have surely you would have commented on it at the moment how could there be a tiger here <laughs> it's like that looks just like a tiger back home. It is a tiger from back home. But of course, he hadn't explained that the Krell even existed at that point in the film. So he couldn't he couldn't reveal that. Um, the Invisible Monster we talked about is amazingly effective uh, and not giving away too much, as you say. The Krell machine. Have did that did that wash over you with a sense of nostalgia in any way, shape or form? No. I didn't. I didn't look up the I didn't look up the references to it, but the Krell machine is both regularly reused the special effects for it, like for example in another TV series I'm sure you've not seen, the Time Tunnel. Um, but they they use that a lot, and then it's also paid homage to many times over. In for example, Babylon Five, there is ultimately a planet that is basically basically Altair 4. It's a planet where the civilization died out and they left behind what they call the Great Machine. And when they go down inside of it, it is not reused these effects. It is redone. But I mean, it's it's the Krell machine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is it is so influential in the in the, the 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 language of science fiction that it has been reused in various ways or reimagined in various ways throughout the story the the krell music obviously sounds just like the soundtrack of the film <laughs> which uh you know all right uh, fair enough uh i it was interesting that he found krell music but no krell pictures <laughs> uh let's see what else did we have that was um did morbius know what the machine was for i'm not sure he did so he says that they were working towards a world without instrumentation. That's a kind of a vague, a vague idea. So we can we can accomplish whatever we want to do without machines, I guess, <clears throat> which would be, I guess, godlike power. So we know he knows that much that they're working on something that would free them of their machines. But when Doc or Adams asks him what the machine was for when they're touring it, he basically changes the subject. In much the same way that Doc changes the subject when Adam starts 
yeah. talking about how amazing the information is that's on there. There is that sort of, and I couldn't tell, is he, is he not wanting to reveal what it is? Or is he embarrassed to admit he doesn't know what it is? Because I can see both being perfectly in character with this, this mm, mm. intellectual snob. <laughs> right that's probably a huge embarrassment to him if he doesn't know what this machine actually does um especially after 20 years <laughs> on the planet so i i don't know that was that was another one that was interesting. let's see i think we probably skipped my entire section of notes on the casual and not so casual sexism in this uh episode part to say that needless to say this is another episode of two old white men talking about <laughs> topics that we're <laughs> uncomfortable with uh i, I it's just it, it it i i you can't give it a pass and yet you can't say it wasn't what was considered acceptable at the time and enough for them which is exactly the kind of things that perpetuates this the this um i would be interested to see this film remade I mean, I, I I don't want to see it remade in as much as it's a classic and it's still, with the exception of this, stands up. But at the same time, I would I would really like to see what they would do now to try to compensate against that. Well, it's not as if this sexist elements are integral to the story. Apart from maybe the the love interest being of. Isn't that what turns isn't that what turns Morbius to the point where he would now kill his daughter as well? And I always kind of wondered, did yes, he kill but, his wife? <laughs> has he never gotten well, mad at them the in the 20 the years? The implication is that he hasn't, but I I I I mean in that that's that's a that's a father-daughter thing. You can tell you can tell a story oh, yeah. without necessarily approving of the characters emotions or actions but you can still describe I agree. them yes 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 so the pro- the, I, the, the, a lot of the problem in this story is is not that we are seeing sexist behaviors and attitudes depicted it's that they are being depicted in a way that is that effectively normalizes them they go yes they go unchallenged and therefore they're effectively approved of yeah adams is absolutely saying well what did you expect you know i mean he's he's got a long speech about what did you expect? I've got 18 guys on here who are, you know, average age of 24.3. They're peak physical physicians and they've been stuck on a ship. It's like, what would you expect? It's like, well, I would expect them to behave like civilized people. That's what I would expect. Not, not to. I think, I think. Be a dead um, horse there. I think the remakes have been mooted. Um, I I think there was a remake in the works. I was reading somewhere 15 years ago or so. But it doesn't mm. came to anything. Uh, certainly, if there has been a remake of Forbidden Planet, man, I've never heard of it. So, oh yeah, another one that shows up throughout. Uh, it's been in a few places. Is Morbius's ten by ten by ten by ten? Mm-hmm. I think it's been it's been used in music. Uh, it's been used. Uh, it was used in some other show. They're explicitly just took it right out of it because of it. That this film being what it is. Um, let's see. I already asked the question if Morbius himself really is the villain of this piece. If you don't, I mean, he... And was Adams going to kill him at the end? When Adams drew his gun, the way that's shot and framed, I 
kind of think he was pulling the he was thinking the kill the monster we pull the plug on morbius yeah that's what that was because it, that wasn't explicit but it was what i was expecting to see explaining his actions that the one 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 way or another we would we would he would he would have to explain why he pulled the gun or if he killed morbius we would see the monster disappear and i i thought that was where we were going with it and as you say instead it's unexplained and i'm not sure exactly what happened to morbius i mean i i put it down there he said he threw himself between the monster and and alta which he did but he's also shouting i renounce you or i deny you or something like that that he's he's trying to he sounds like he's trying to intellectualize yeah again it's like no my my mind can overcome the id well no we already know it can't but you know he's still he's still thinking that but since he's not torn up and ripped around the room like quinn who he never saw or any of the bellerophon did the monster kill him or did he die in some other way because he you know by by shouting i deny you did that blow a circuit somewhere i wasn't quite sure i know they couldn't you know, soak him in ketchup and pretend it was blood. But I feel like the way it was shot and the way you don't see at all what happened, you don't see Morbius being picked up and thrown. You don't see, you don't see anything. And, and I would argue that a slightly better conclusion would be that it is clearer that the monster intentionally killed him because Morbius is suicidal at that point. Morbius is self loathing for what he realizes he's done then 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 it makes sense that the monster kills him in an act of self-destruction but i'm not exactly sure what the heck happened there at the end because it happens off camera so mm, i I think the most you can say is they destroy each other or that they are both destroyed by whatever occurs yeah i i briefly mentioned the whole there's there's several of the there's several of the religious angle issues thrown into this and that I know is a thing of the 50s. Actually, is, is 56 when we're right in the middle of the... It is, isn't it? 56 is right in the middle of the whole McCarthy thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's about right. So that's about the same time that they added under God in the, in the United States this Pledge of Allegiance, which was secular prior to that because it was a we're not atheist communists therefore we're gonna we're gonna beat the drum so that i could yeah okay that makes sense 56 that makes perfect sense um i personally found it both out of place and absurd not going not going into the arguments against god but you know one of them is there's this whole universe with and we're this massively massively humongous universe and it's got nothing but you know, it was made nothing but for us. And you're flipping off to another planet somewhere and your first thought is, wow, God makes beautiful planets. I'm like, really? Really? Come on, Doc. <laughs> you, have, you got an IQ of 161, I believe. You, 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 come on, really? <laughs> um, so that is it. And um, yeah, I, I don't... Uh, it's definitely a worthy film of, of studying and... Uh, watching and its its place in the the pantheon of classic science fiction films surprisingly 
in a way. I was kind of surprised because it, um, I did a search for, you know, like 10 most important science fiction films or 100 most important. And it's, it's not actually on many of the lists, hmm. which just surprised the heck out of me. And then, you know, you'll see crap like the eternal sunshine of the of the mind hey. or something. You go, okay, these are crummy. <laughs> <laughs> it that's, may be a good great. film, but that's... <laughs> You know, it it's not may a space be, opera. Well, no, but anyway. <laughs> the eternal sun. What is it? The eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Spotless mind. That's the word I couldn't come up with. Spotless mind. Uh, all right. Have you got anything else on this? I I just note that in terms of its its recognition as being a classic, it is evident in the little. Um, homilies that seem to get played here and there morbius yeah as in the brain of brain of um for, that's, uh, forbidden that's, planet is planet of evil yeah doctor I, who. I saw reference to that i i haven't seen planet of evil well i think i've only ever seen uh, it a, once, a rescue I, crew arrives on a planet that has a scientific expedition where most yeah, of them yeah. have been killed and it's a giant invisible monster that's <laughs> slaughtering them it, it, yeah no the, the the filmmakers on that explicitly said it was it was a you know as as that era was doing frankenstein and and forbidden planet and, and a few of the other classics uh of old cinema and redoing them that that was planet of evil so yeah there's that and um there's a, apparently a ship on miranda in the film serenity oh yeah yeah is called c57d yep i can i can see whedon being uh slipping that in all that could be the effects crew or something too but yeah yeah no it's it, it has it has it has a lot of aficionados it has endured and it is definitely uh definitely worth having a look at uh even you know but don't be offended by the blu-ray cover that has uh the captain in a red outfit instead of <laughs> instead of blue gray um <laughs> I was looking for that red outfit throughout the whole film. It never shows up. It's always the blue-gray. And uh, I'm very disappointed. <laughs> oh, yeah. Whatever happened to Cook? Didn't he survive? He wasn't in the last scene that I could see. And after the bit where the commander, you know, lets him off, we never see him again, as far as I know. Unless it just... I thought it was weird that that character, you know, wouldn't be standing there at the end with his arm on Rob Robbie. If nothing else, right? Because they were pals. So it just it was kind of... Um... Well, anyway, Simon, thank you for joining me. It's uh, a pleasure as always. And here's to the here's to getting on with the next 500. Oh. <laughs> it's taken so long. <laughs> I think that might be an ambition beyond. Let's, let's just go for the next 100 and see how we make it there. <laughs> well, either way, we're going to start with 501, so... Yes, we are. So, uh, listeners, thank you for joining us, uh, not only for this episode, but for the past uh, 499 episodes, plus or minus the missing ones and the extra ones. <laughs> and we hope you'll join us all again next time for episode 501 of Fusion Patrol. <laughs> You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. 
come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at FusionPatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production. On the next episode of Fusion Patrol, join John and myself as we look at the 1975 TV movie, The Invisible Man, starring David McCallum. Come join the conversation.